The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're going through the book of Titus. For those of you who haven't been with us, just to bring you up to speed, uh, this little epistle written at the end of the Apostle Paul's life. And Paul, uh, there's an island, it was called Crete, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and ships would pass by. And actually, Paul floated by there at least once or twice that we know of, but during the course of his ministry, he didn't get to spend a whole lot of time there, except one time on a shipwreck for a very brief period of time, and then went to prison, was released from prison, and actually probably had an opportunity to go to the island, uh, plant churches, and also encourage other believers who were already there, probably from Pentecost days, where they heard the gospel. And he had this brother, Titus, his uh, younger protege that he was training, with him, and then Paul had to go, and so he left Titus on the island of Crete and gave him a very specific commission to strengthen the churches and the community of believers that existed there on the island of Crete, and that's Titus's job here, and that's really what this book is about, three chapters, and it, it covers a gamut of topics, that's why it is so rich, uh, but it is clear as we read Titus that the churches in Crete were underdeveloped, immature didn't have, weren't privileged with a whole lot of apostolic revelation. So they had some growing up to do and filling in the holes and establishing some structure of what God was doing there. So that was Titus's job. So uh, he commissioned Titus to start with the leadership, put a biblical godly leadership intact, and then go from there and, and build around the strong biblical leadership. Other, another problem that was going on in the churches at Crete was there was wrong teaching, wrong thinking, and professed believers of a Jewish bent who called themselves Christians and followers of Jesus who had been there. Maybe they were even from that area, natives. And they were kind of taken over in a lot of the areas where Christians had fellowships and Bible studies and jockeying for position of power and authority and even positions of leaders. And they were creating a problem because they were ungodly, they uh, had immorality. We're going to see this in the book of Titus. And they also had false teaching. So uh, directive number one for Titus, the delegate of the apostle, is to establish a godly leadership and then from there deal with all these other problems in the church. And it starts with, Titus does, establishing very clearly what the qualifications are for a leader in a local church, a leader or an elder, pastor, bishop. It's got to start there. Because I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, as the leadership goes, so goes the organization, right? So it's got to have a solid foundation of a godly leadership intact in these churches on the island of Crete to begin with, to deal with all of these problems and help with the growth and the lack of maturity in certain areas. So we're looking at qualifications of an elder or a pastor, also known as bishops and overseers. The beginning of the book of Titus, uh, this is round three. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's just two books previous to Titus because that also lists qualifications. I want to read through those as we also read through the qualifications of Titus. Look at Titus chapter 1 with me. Follow along as I read 5 through 9, beginning of this letter. Paul tells Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Every city on the island of Crete. Verse 6, Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, 
For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. And then there's going to be one more qualification in verse 10 that we'll get to in the next week or so. Now flip over to 1 Timothy 3, a parallel account, keeping in mind that uh, Timothy was written to young Timothy, who was also trained by Paul. So Timothy and Titus are very similar. They followed Paul for years. They were trained by Paul. They were saved under his ministry and his preaching. Uh, They grew in the faith. They were trusted by Paul. And Paul commissions Timothy to do certain things for him. And he commissions Titus to do certain things. And these two letters were written pretty much at the same period of time. This was the end of Paul's life. And so they have somewhat similar missions. Timothy is for a time sent by Paul to the churches of Ephesus to help uh, establishing order and sound doctrine there. And then Titus is... Uh, on the island of Crete. And so as a result, since the context are so similar, Paul gives qualifications for elders to Timothy as well. The one significant difference is when Paul gives these qualifications for elder in 1 Timothy 3 to Timothy in the churches at Ephesus, the churches at Ephesus already had elders. Whereas the churches uh, on Crete for Titus did not have elders yet. So that's a, a pretty significant difference in the two but i want to read first timothy 3 1 and following just so you get an idea so are the qualifications the same are there some that are different do they complement one another and the answer is yes to all of those so go, let's go ahead and look at it uh chapter 3 verse 1 of first timothy it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer or elder it is a fine work he desires to do an overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife temperate prudent respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he then take care of the church of God? He must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So go back to Titus chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 8 where we have six more qualifications. We do want to take them very specifically, one at a time, because they, they mean something very specific. When the church is called to appoint elders or pastors in the church, There's a standard. There are specific qualifications. There's criteria. And God has delineated very specifically what those traits, characteristics, attributes are. And that's why we're taking them one at a time and understanding them, hopefully, from Scripture, very specifically what they are, what they mean, how do they uh, apply to our church or just any local church this day. Because even though this was written 2,000 years ago, these qualifications still apply to God's churches today. Nothing has changed. So let's go ahead and look at verse 8, the next six qualifications. But uh, before I do, just a reminder of qualifications so far that we have uh, talked about for elders, verses 6 and 7. An elder uh, has to be above reproach, 
a one-woman man, especially if he's married, a male. Men are pastors. Women are not called to be pastors, according to Scripture. Women are gifted by God in other significant ways for ministry. Uh, the pastor, if he has children, then those children need to be faithful children, obedient children, children under control. Uh, and then the negatives. Verse two, uh, number Point number two was an elder has control over his passions. And then uh, Paul gives five qualifications, or really negative qualifications, or vices, if you will. He can't be stubborn or self-willed. He can't have a short fuse. He can't be controlled or addicted to alcohol. He can't be violent or a bully. He can't be greedy or love money in an illegitimate way. So those are the five vices. And now we look at uh, point number three in the outline there. An elder has control over his lifestyle. And these, and we've got six there, and these are virtues. So we just did vices, now there are virtues. So when we are considering an elder or a pastor or a bishop, an overseer, and actually here at GBF, we are always praying, God, you know, if it is your will, raise up other men to serve as elders, pastors, shepherds in your church. So we, we give that to God, we lay that before him, we pray fervently, and then we see what he does. And then when he brings us people, we need to match them up to these God-ordained qualifications. So last week were the five vices. These are six virtues we're going to look at, A through F. And I just kind of categorized it generically under his lifestyle. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at these uh, characteristics or attributes that should be fitting for a pastor. In verse 8, uh, first of all, they are... And I'm reading from the New American Standard. By the way, depending upon your English translation, you might have a variance or different words as I'm going through as I'm reading the New American Standard, and hopefully I can clarify that for you as we go. But in verse 8, you've got, The elder must be hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, and self-controlled. So that's the New American Standard. We'll take those one by one. The first one is that a pastor or elder needs to be hospitable. Hospitable. This is actually a compound word in the Greek text. Uh, loving strangers is the word. Philadelphia. Uh, philos. Phileo. That means to love. And that's part of the word that makes up this compound word here for hospitable. Love. Xenos, xenophobia, strangers, loving strangers, loving people you don't know. And so an elder needs to be a lover of strangers, hospitable. Uh, over the years, I'm, I'm surprised at how confusing this word is. And probably a reason there's confusion over it because it's not really used a whole lot of times in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, that I could find hospitality, this exact word, uh, is used in Romans 12, 13, Hebrews 13, 2, 1 Peter 4, 9, 1 Timothy 3, 2. We're going to read a couple of those. And then here, so that means it's only used five times. And I did read all five of those in context. And they pretty much, there are common themes of the context in how it is being used. So looking the way Paul and Peter use the word hospitality will help us in understanding what this qualification is, that an elder needs to be hospitable. Because many times uh, this word is misinterpreted by Christians. Sometimes it has to do with just the way it's used today in our modern vernacular, where they're using it uh, in American English in 2012, and it really isn't rooted in its biblical origin or the New Testament context. There is a clear, definitive 
New Testament context for the word of uh, hospitality and to love strangers. Uh, Every English translation that I looked at, for the most part, translated it the same as hospitable or hospitality. Uh, Again, loving strangers. Uh, The idea really is to be welcoming to strangers. Or one uh, interpretation says entering, entertaining visitors and strangers. Now, these are people you don't know. So in the New Testament times, probably when Paul was alive, even in the days of Jesus, and this carries back even into the Old Testament, uh, a big nuance of the word hospitality and loving strangers had to do, especially in the early Christian community, was when believers were traveling through your area that didn't live in your area. A perfect example would be Joseph and Mary coming down to Bethlehem. They didn't live in Bethlehem, and they're looking for a place to stay for however long, to register. And it says they couldn't find a place to stay. That's pretty sad. you got two fellow believing Jews from the north coming to town, and they can't be accommodated. They can't, nobody, they can't find a place to stay with fellow believers. So the act of hospitality would be somebody who lived in that town reaching out and recognizing, oh, we've got two foreigners, but they're believers. Uh, we share the same God. They don't have a place to stay. It's getting dark. Wow, this woman is pregnant. We need to accommodate her. I'll sleep on the floor, you sleep in our bedroom. Uh, That would have been an act of hospitality, showing love to strangers, people that didn't know Joseph and Mary. Uh, So that is a big emphasis. It it was welcoming strangers who were passing through town many times. And sometimes it was people who were traveling for a feast. And many times in the early church, it was people who were traveling uh, through town or coming to your town where they weren't from because of persecution. They were chased out of their town. That happened in Jerusalem. So all these believers were chased out of Jerusalem and they're spread all over the place. And the act of Christian hospitality would be to, you find out these people aren't from this area, they have a need, they're fellow believers, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to extend hospitality to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. That is one of the main usages of the word of hospitality in the days of Paul. To show that kind of entertaining, welcoming love to somebody you don't know But another point of emphasis that was significant in all five usages in the New Testament was when it refers to strangers, it's always in the context, at least in the New Testament, of fellow believers. Fellow believers. That comes right out of the book of Galatians as well. Do good as it is in your power. Do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith. There's a priority. And so the church is called to be very specific in looking out for fellow believers who have a specific need in this area of not having a place to lay their head and uh, they're not from your area and we would call them strangers because we don't know them and they're not our friends and they're not in our clique and they're not a part of our holy huddle and we are extending love and welcoming arms to them. So this is really the historical context of that word of hospitality, loving strangers, loving those you don't know, going outside your own little circle to welcome these people So the common denominator is they were believers. They weren't from that area. They didn't have a place to go many times or they had a specific material need. Uh, You didn't know them, but there was definitely they had a need. You show hospitality. I think it's in Hebrews 13 where it uses the word hospitality and brotherly love together. We need to show hospitality. We also need to show brotherly love. And they're, or maybe it's in uh, Romans. They're used together. And they both mean something very specific. Brotherly love was just uh, love and good towards all your believers that in your immediate vicinity. Even if they didn't have any, that's just being a loving Christian, an accommodating Christian, 
with a servant's heart. Uh, hospitality was a specific kind of love you extended toward foreigners, strangers, people with a specific need. And usually it was, if not always, a material need. Whether food to eat, a place to lay their head. So there was a difference between brotherly love and stranger love as used in the New Testament. And elders need to pretty much set the standard in the local church in being hospitable. In other words, being cognizant of visitors in our midst and coming through. People that we are not a part of our fellowship, people who are either passing through, visiting, maybe people who have moved here from across the country for whatever reason. And so, first of all, we've got to recognize that we have visitors among us. That's You can't be oblivious, right? As an elder, you've got to be discerning and recognize, oh, here, here's a new person in our midst. And then we need to make a beeline to find out who they are, where they came from, what their circumstances are, do they have any needs, and if they have specific needs, as fellow, and find out if they're believers, how can we accommodate them? How can we meet these special and unique needs? That's what elders in the local church need to be doing in light of this uh, requirement, hospitality. And hospitality, by the way, is a command given to every believer, every believer in Hebrews and in Romans. So every Christian needs to be a hospitable person, loving strangers who are believers who are not from where you are who have a legitimate physical need we need to accommodate them and serve them and the elders need to be setting the pace and holding the bar nice and high in terms of the loving standard that god requires that is hospitality that is important to know and understand so hospitality is not just a matter of being friendly Uh, some people Actually, I actually was reading through a book, a Christian book, where the point of emphasis was that elders need to be hospitable. And what that means is that the elders need to invite the members over to their house for dinner. Yeah, I heard an amen over there. And I'll just tell you, that is not what hospitality means. That's somebody's uh, messed up, self-serving definition of biblical hospitality. Wow, how come all the elders haven't had me over for dinner yet? You're not being biblical. Well, that isn't what the word means. First of all, you have a house. Your house is bigger than mine. You have more food than I do. Can I come to your house for dinner? But anyway, and I am not kidding. That's what the point of emphasis in this book was. So your elders, they need to be inviting the members over for dinner. It's okay to invite people over for dinner. That is not what this word is talking about. It's meeting people, people who have legitimate, real physical, material needs. And they are not from your church, but they are fellow believers because it's a great reminder, we are not part of just a local church, we're, we're, we're a part of the universal church of Jesus Christ, aren't we? That is around the world today and that has been going on for 2,000 years. That is the church of Jesus Christ. So we got to get our eyes up and off of ourselves, being other-oriented, even around the world. So that is the real meaning of the word hospitality, stranger love. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, an elder has control over his lifestyle. The elder welcomes strangers, is hospitable. Oh, one other point. So another point of emphasis on hospitality is that an elder is welcoming. He is inviting and two visitors. He's willing to embrace them. And in the local church, I alluded to it earlier, that's what elders need to do. They need to be proactive in finding out who the new people are, who the visitors are, what their story is, where they came from, and again, what their needs are, and especially if they are believers who have just recently maybe moved to this area. I think of college students moving all over the country. How important of a ministry that is. Where a lot of times they're leaving home many miles away, they need a home. They don't have their parents, they don't have their family. Uh, That can be very unsettling very insecure, and the local church needs to take those collegiate college students in and provide 
a stable, godly, biblical, welcoming, warm Christian home for them while they are studying abroad. So that's one practical way that that can be applied in the local church. So that is uh, loving strangers or welcoming strangers. Okay, next one. Uh, In terms of these virtues of the lifestyle of an elder on B, the elder loves what is good. The elder loves what is good. And this is pretty straightforward. It's a compound word, loves good. And the good can be either good people or good things, good ideas, good doctrine, good lifestyles, good everything. It just applies to everything. By good, it refers to um, that which is virtuous, that which is wholesome, that which is true, that which is biblical. As a matter of fact, flip, uh, flip to Philippians 4.8 which is a, a great verse. This is uh, Philippians 4 is a good illustration of what the mindset, the thinking pattern, the perspective, the world view of an elder should be when it comes to loving that which is good. Well, what good things? It's good things and good people. Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, true truth, truth is good. Error is bad. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable. Well, what's not honorable? Well, your average late night um, TV show like David Letterman, etc., where you know those so-called funny shows, where a large percentage is like crude humor, or the opening monologue where they just rip on people, and that's supposed to be funny. Well, that's not honorable. That is not good, and we shouldn't showcase that. And say it is good. Uh, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So there is a great biblical definition and example of that which is good. And the elder or the elder candidate needs to love those things that are good and hate, really, Things that are not good, like crude humor that is so popular in our culture. As a matter of fact, well, what is good and what's not good? Well, most of what's out in our culture is not good in terms of what we're told to be, think is popular or that we're supposed to uh, espouse and emulate and imitate and desire after. Most often what is in the culture goes against what is good according to the Bible and according to God. So an elder then usually is going to be swimming upstream against the culture in terms of ordaining or accepting what is good. And that is so true. But that's what an elder needs to do, and that can be hard sometimes because you're going to get resistance, you're going to get persecution, you're going to be mocked. Uh, People will call you at times a legalist illegitimately when you're standing up for good and resisting that which is bad or evil. But that's okay. That's what leaders need to do. They need to take a strong stand. So... Uh, that's a simple one in terms of its explanation, and all of the tr- English translations translate it the same way, that an elder needs to be a lover of good and not a compromiser when it comes to those kind of things. So let's go on to the next one. An elder needs to uh, welcome strangers. An elder loves what is good. Letter C, an elder is sober-minded. Sober-minded. This is a tricky one. I said sober-minded The New American Standard says the elder needs to be sensible. The King James says the elder needs to be sober. 
which can be a little misleading because sometimes when we hear the word sober, we're thinking someone who's not drunk, but that is not what this word's talking about. The NIV says self-controlled. When I hear that word, I immediately think of um, Galatians 5.23, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Just so you know, that word in Galatians 5.23 is not the same word here. They are two totally different words. So in other words, I don't think self-control is a legitimate translation here. Again, the New American Standard said sensible. The NIV says self-controlled. The the word for self-controlled in Galatians 5.23, a fruit of the Spirit, that exact Greek word is actually used here in Titus 1.8, the last characteristic of an elder where it says self-controlled, which the NIV says discipline, so they confuse the matter. Hopefully you're not too confused. Um, the ESV says self-controlled here, which is not the most helpful translation. And then the New King James says sober-minded. And that's the one I adopted because that's the most true to the Greek word. And the reason it is because the Greek word here is a compound word. It's two words put together and sober-minded. And one of those words is mind. Healthy-minded, good-minded, saved-minded, sober-minded. The word mind has to do... The emphasis here is on how the elder thinks. Using his mind. So that is a great translation, the New King James. The elder needs to be sober-minded. And again, this is the primary uh, emphasis here is in his thought life. And not just in his private personal thought life. The emphasis here is on his being sober-minded and how he thinks as a leader in the local church. That's the whole point. That's why these are qualifications for elders and leaders in the church. In light of what you have to do, deal with in the church, with people, with sin, with trials, with decisions that need to be made, with uh, the sensitivity and the priority and the high calling of having to deal with the money that belongs to the people that they give to the church, elders need to think the right way and be very sober-minded in all of their decision-making. So this has to do with how an elder, pastor, bishop, overseer thinks and controls his mind in heavy-duty decisions, primarily in the ministry of the local church. And there are heavy-duty decisions that have to be made and thought through and prayed through all the time. It is nonstop. Sensible. Uh, here are some other ways that commentators translate this word. This one was probably the most confusing among the commentators in trying to most accurately convey into the English language this very rare Greek word. Very rare Greek word. And it's a specific point of emphasis. And again, the emphasis is on the mind. Sober-minded. Here's a, here's a good word. Reasonable. Reasonable in thinking. Reasonable in assessing. Reasoning, uh, reasonable in rendering judgments. Reasonable. Steady in his thought life. That's a great word. Steady. Self-restrained in the thought life. Self-controlled is a good word if you just remember that it's self-controlled in his thinking. So you put those together. The elder needs to be self-restrained in his thinking, self-controlled in his thinking, and steady in his thinking. In other words, he can't be all over the map. Especially when difficult circumstances come or when the emotions start to get weighed in. Because when you come across difficult situations in life or in the church, and you come across... Uh, challenges and especially personal challenges 
many times the first thing that goes is your steady, consistent, objective thinking, right? Because the emotions come in, they cloud, we can't render reasonable, good, legitimate decisions. We can't think logically. So I guess the opposite or the antonym of this would be uh, emotional thinking. This is not emotional thinking. This is objective thinking. This is logical th- thinking. This is being able to diagnose and assess uh, very difficult situations very systematically, very procedurally, in accordance with truth, and then rendering very reasonable decisions as a result. But it all comes back to the mind and how a person thinks. So if somebody's wishy-washy, that, that is not good. The ability to control your thoughts and emotions so that you can think rationally and discreetly so as not to impede your decision-making It's clear thinking, it is consistent thinking, it is logical, objective. It is discipline of your thought life in analyzing difficult situations especially. This is prudent thinking, discreet thinking, temperate thinking, moderate thinking. These are all the words that all these commentators were using to try to explain what this meant. So again, the point of emphasis is on the thought life and how you reason and think and assess things. What kind of perspective you bring to the table, especially with difficult situations in the church. Absolute priority. An elder needs to be sensible and sober-minded. Okay, let's go on to the next one. So an elder needs to welcome strangers, love what is good, be sober-minded in his thinking. One footnote on sober-minded one more time. I'd say if I had to say what was the most important adjective characteristic defining this adjective of being sober-minded would be someone who is objective in their thinking. Boy, if you've ever been on a board, a school board, uh, a board in the local community, your home association, and you're sitting on a committee with a group of people that are very different and think very different with very different perspectives and they're very passionate and emotional about certain issues, as you are, and then you've got to come together and render unanimous decisions at times. Everybody's got to be thinking the right way. You have got to be a sensible, objective thinker in that kind of scenario. And that's what's true with elders, because elders always rule as a group together, seeking the will of God, prayerfully talking about difficult issues. But when it comes time to make a decision and render decision, I believe God's will is that they do it unanimously. And that usually comes after very uh, extended periods of time of difficult thought and sometimes even wrestling with each other about what each other is thinking about a certain thing. So that that is arduous work behind the scenes. But it is so uh, common to the role of being a pastor and elder, at least what elders and pastors should be doing behind the scenes. So this this might be a neglected attribute of the work of a shepherd that just is not talked about much or even considered. Boy, if you want to pray for your elders at your local church, whatever church you go to, because I know we have some visitors today, pray very specifically for your elders, your pastors, your shepherds, that God would give them supernatural wisdom through the Holy Spirit to allow them to think thoughts, God's thoughts after Him. To be sensible in their thinking and reasonable and consistent with truth and reality and to be objective. And also in the end, to be totally in sync with each other and unified with the Spirit of God before they move forward. Because I believe that's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit and how He operates is unity among believers in the truth. 
Very important. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, the elder needs to be sensible or sober-minded. And then D, the elder is fair. He needs to be fair. The New American Standard says the elder needs to be just. Dikaion, Dikaion, those Greek students that we have. I know, I know you're out there. This actually comes from the word righteousness. It's related to it. It's a cognate. Just is a good translation. Um, the New American Standard says just. The King James says just. The New King James says just. The NIV says upright, which is legit. That's a component of it. As does the ESV. Uh, one commentator said fair, which I think gets to the heart of what it's talking about here. So those are all good words. And an elder needs to be just. He needs to be fair. Upright. Well, what does he need to be just and fair? That's not just generically speaking uh, out in the world necessarily. Again, the context is how he conducts himself, thinks and makes decisions and rates, relates to people in the local church. Elders, pastors need to be just and fair. Very important because that puts them in the role as judges. And appropriately so. This is like a legal term. Elders, pastors need to be judges, if you will, in the local church. Because many times, the elders and the plurality of the elders, they need to deal with schisms in the church or division in the church or maybe two believers who don't see eye to eye and it gets to a point where they can't work it out and then maybe the elders or pastors have to intervene to try to help them get along. And this is where the attribute or characteristic of an elder or pastor who is just and fair is going to play into that scenario and help these brothers and sisters in the Lord reconcile with one another. So uh, that is a point of emphasis in this word. It's seeing your elders as judges or umpires, if you will. And they need to be just and fair because the opposite of being just, Here's how pastors act in an unjust, unfair way. I mean, there's a lot of examples. The opposite of this word. A problem arises in the church. There's a squabble in the church. Uh, there's two believers that can't get along and they can't reconcile. And they're both uh, members of the church. They're both uh, influential members of the church. They both have significant ministries in the church. Maybe they actually are both liked by the pastor or the elder. And then the pastor or elder just doesn't want to deal with problems, actually doesn't like problems, and just ignores it altogether. That is not just. That's where this word would play into that. So justice a lot of times has to do with courage. Being willing to <laughs> admit problems and face problems head on. And a lot of people have a really hard time with that. I don't like conflict. Have you ever heard that? I have. I'm thinking, well, who likes conflict? Oh, the Pharisees, I forgot. Um, but it, yeah, that's not normal to like conflict. But if you're going to be a leader and a leader in God's church, uh, what you like has nothing to do with it. You have got to be a just and fair judge and help people reconcile and take on the hard issues. So that's one example of not being fair or just. That's just ignoring it altogether or dismissing the problem, minimizing a problem. Judges do that or bad judges do. Or another way to be an unfair, unjust judge as an elder is you've got a scenario and two people aren't getting along or whatever. And the, the other one, you actually like that person more than you like the other one. And so you render a verdict in favor of the one that you like. That is showing partiality. That is not just. That is not fair. That's not legitimate. God is not pleased with that. That's actually sinful. Do pastors do that? Yeah, they do. We are all susceptible to acting that way. 
And that's why this is so important. So when it's thrown out these words, you can't just read through it. Oh, he needs to be just, fair. No, just how? Fair how? Fair as a judge in the local church, arbitrating, mediating, reconciling, courageously facing, honestly, problems in the church, working them out slowly, prayerfully, patiently, following lockstep with the Spirit of God in His time, in accordance with truth. And justice, that's what this word means. And this is incredibly important with your leadership. And all of your elders have to be like this. There, there are a lot of sick churches. out there. I've worked with sick churches. And no doubt I've probably contributed to sick churches over the years. But a lot of sick churches that I am familiar with and come into contact with, and I've shared this with you over and over again, it, it goes the diagnosis, it goes back to the leadership. Either an unbiblical leadership structure or people who are in place that should not be there. And a lot of times people are put there for whatever reason and sometimes they're not vetted through all of these very carefully delineated biblical qualifications. This one is huge. Hopefully your elders and your pastors are fair and just in their role of the church. So elders need to be welcoming strangers. They need to be loving what is good, sober-minded in their thinking, fair and just when they're rendering judgments in the church in the midst of problems. Among the sheep. Uh, letter E. The elder is loyal to the office. That's the next one. Loyal is the key word here. The New American Standard says that the elder needs to be devout. Uh, what do you think of in your own mind when you hear the word devout? I think of like uh, a monk in the 700s in a cave with a candle on his knees praying 19 hours a day. That's just my first image. Maybe you've got your own image. Devout. Actually, that's not far off because this word... Oh, oh, I should say that the New American Standard says devout. And then the King James says holy. The NIV says holy. The ESV says holy. And the New King James says holy. And all four of those, actually, those are not the right translation. The typical word that we see as holy in the New Testament is hagias, holy. Like the holy ones. Or God is holy. And this word is uh, hasion. And it's, again, hardly ever used in reference to a human being. A couple of times it's used of God in Revelation. Once it's used of Jesus, I think, in Timothy. Very rare word again. It doesn't mean holy in the way we typically think of holy. Set apart uh, by God for a holy purpose, made holy, positionally holy in Christ. That is not this word. The Holy Spirit, that is not this word. That's why the New American Standard uh, does a good job in saying devout. That's a better translation. And when it is, and there's, uh, this is used in the Old Testament with the Greek Septuagint many times, and many times it's in the context of religious duties, uh, religious practices among the priests and the sacrifices. And so there is this connotation of religion that covers and smothers this term. A religious person in a legitimate way. A reverent person. That's probably another good translation. An elder needs to be a reverent person. In other words, he's not a flippant person in terms of his role as elder. He cares about his spirituality and how he stands before God and representing God as best he can, not just on Sundays, but every day of his life. So he is. He's a spiritual man. He's a religious man, legitimately so. And devout is a great word. Uh, other words, pious, serious, as opposed to flippant. That's a good contrast. 
The elder can't be flippant in his role as an elder, as a pastor, in this holy and sacred office. We, there are times where we have approached men either as deacons or elders. And there are times when we've asked them to pray about it and consider it, all the way from the very beginning six years ago. And a, a common response, and then you go back to them, okay, have you been praying? We've been praying for you. What do you think? Is God, first of all, is the desire there? That's where it starts, First Timothy 3.1. Is the desire there? And then, okay, well, what do you think in light of your desire and the qualification? Many times the response has been, wow, I just, I don't know if I can do this because I don't know if I'm qualified. And they feel bad. And I think that is a great answer. I'm actually rejoicing. Praise God. Because that, that tells me they have an incredible sensitivity to the sacredness of this high and holy office of deacon and elder, or deacon and pastor. That actually nobody is qualified for, technically speaking, and nobody deserves. But just that mindset just shows you this sensitivity to, wow, this is a really high calling with great accountability before God, and I know who I am. I'm a worm. Yes, you are. Amen, brother. And that's why I'm considering you. Um, but that I just love that attitude. I, I would get scared and nervous, and I don't think this has happened here at our church, praise God, where you ask somebody to consider being a deacon and an elder and then you go back to him and say, well, what do you think? Well, uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think I'm totally qualified and I'm more qualified than anybody that's currently on the board. Thank you very much. Yikes. You don't get it. That hasn't happened. Amen. But that's this word devout. That, that incredible sensitivity to what this calling is all about as a, an elder or deacon. He needs to be devout. And he's, a, he's an elder really seven days a week, not just on Sunday. So an elder welcomes and loves strangers. He loves what is good. He's sober-minded in his thinking. He's fair and just in rendering judgments. He is loyal to the office and knows it's the highest calling. I love that quote, famous one from Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor from a century ago, who reportedly said, if God calls you to be a pastor, don't stoop to be a king. Wow. That's a good thought or a good perspective. Okay, let's go on to the last one. Uh, hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout. And then finally, letter F, the elder is disciplined. He's disciplined. And this is the Greek word for self-controlled, the same word I said in Galatians 5.23. So the elder needs to be self-controlled. And if you look at D, E, and F, I did put there the point of emphasis that helps us a little bit. Just as how you deal is your actions towards people, devout is your attitude towards God in light of yourself, and then letter F is discipline. That's your attitude towards yourself. Boy, you have got to be a self-examining, self-perceptive person to be an elder or a deacon. Because self-control starts with you. All the years that I've been a Christian, of the... Fruits of the Spirit, the one that I've always struggled with the most, because many times I just kind of evaluated my own life from my own perspective. Okay, which of the fruits of the Spirit are true in my life right now? Which ones am I uh, most weak in? And that, boy, that nagging self-control at the very end always uh, stumps me, and it really irritates me. Self-control, self-control, self-control. And so I've thought that all my years as being a Christian. Then it was about like three or four weeks ago, I was uh, having some fellowship with some older believers, older saints, who've, who've known Jesus for like 50, 60 years. And the topic of the fruits of the Spirit came up. And this Christian who's been a believer for like 70 years, somebody that I totally admire and respect, and we were talking about the fruits of the Spirit, and they started, oh, and that nagging last one, self-control. And it was just refreshing to hear like a 
72-year-old saint hear that? I was like, oh, okay, you're not, I'm not the only one. <laughs> Praise God. But that is the attribute here, self-control. Are we even able to be honest with ourselves? There are so many weaknesses and blind spots we have that sometimes we're not even out of self-interest able to be honest with ourselves, evaluating ourselves, asking ourselves, are we self-controlled? I believe that's one of the reasons why God gave marriage even before sin when He said that it is not good for the man to be alone and the two shall be one flesh. And one of the greatest things that your spouse can be for you is a mirror for you. Get that mirror out of my face! Because they're always showing you your weaknesses, your faults, your shortcomings, where you lack self-control. But that was by God's design. That accountability, that close accountability to help us grow. So when you're thinking through and evaluating your own self and self-control in your life, it's always good to get the input of some the people closest to you. How am I doing in self-control? You know what? That's also kind of scary to do. Whoa, to ask somebody really close to you, to be totally honest and to hear that. How am I doing in this area of self-control? Where are the areas where I need to improve my self-control? Whoa. But that's what we need to do. Uh, you've got to be honest. You've got to be willing to examine yourself and be self-perceptive and there are people who don't have an ability for whatever reason to be self-perceptive they're just kind of oblivious of how they affect people uh, and how what they say affects people and they're just they don't get it an elder needs to be in tune of himself how people think about him how he affects people what his words do to people what his thoughts do to people what his family does to people what his people think about his he has got to be in tune Because that is a key component to being self-controlled. Because self-control has to do with restraining yourself. And you've got to be honest and objective and you've got to know yourself. You've got to know where your weaknesses are and where your strengths are. And where your strengths are, you've got to rein those in. And usually you have to rein them in with somebody's help. You can't do it on your own. That's why you need a high level of accountability. At least, I know I do. But going back to the basic meaning of self-controlled, for the elder... It is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. So if you're not a Christian, you're not going to have this component in your life. If you're not walking in the Spirit, this is not going to be true of you. If you're not dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you, you won't be able to have self-control as a pattern of life in every area of life. This is being able to pretty much reign in your passions and desires to a legitimate level in every area of your life. So this is actually a comprehensive term. Are you self-controlled in your thought life? in your diet, in the way you live, in how you conduct your home life, in your organization, how you maintain uh, your house, just everything. uh, Self-control is reflected everywhere. That's why it's so challenging and so difficult. And nobody has arrived when it comes to self-control. We're all on the path, aren't we? Going in a direction. Not perfection of your life, but the direction of your life. And this is true of self-control. This is self-restraint of self. Ability to abstain from what is improper, the excesses of life, reigning in the flesh, because we all have it. And elders need to be self-controlled in their actions, their words, their thoughts, their passions. And that is a, a tremendous challenge. And we need other believers in the Spirit of God most of all to help us walk that delicate balance. So there it is. There are six virtues of the lifestyle that should characterize elders and pastors in the local church. And with that, look at 1 Peter chapter 5. I always want to go back to the standard, to the perfect pastor. And that was uh, Jesus, the only senior pastor on record in the New Testament, because that's what he's called. 
And any church that has a deficiency in their elders or pastors, if they're really a Christian, they always have the perfect senior pastor to go to. That's Jesus, right? You don't need to complain about the pastors in your church because you have a perfect pastor. His name is Jesus, the perfect shepherd. Uh, follow along as I read First Peter in closing, five, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. This is Peter writing. As your fellow elder. So Peter was an elder too. He wasn't just an apostle. He was also an elder, pastor, shepherd in the church. Uh, exhorting elders in the local church. I exhort you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you in your local church. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Don't do it because you're forced to, but do it voluntarily. And do it according to the will of God. And not for sordid gain or for money, but with eagerness. Verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. Don't abuse your authority, your delegated authority. But rather, prove to be examples to the flock. Verse 4, this is great. And when the chief shepherd, that phrase, senior pastor, that's what that means. Literally, in the Greek text. Jesus is the senior pastor of GBF. And, by the way, the only senior pastor of GBF. And when the senior pastor, the chief shepherd, appears in the future upon his return, you, faithful elders, will receive the unfading crown of glory for faithful service. Amen. Well, with that, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity for fellowship to worship through song, to commit our prayers to you. Again, thank you for Scripture and its clarity and also its relevance that is practical to us, God. Uh, Titus, 2,000 years after it was written. That, that is amazing. We're reminded that the Word of God, your Scripture is living and active, piercing and penetrating. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for being our teacher, helping us understand these supernatural truths. And God, through your Holy Spirit, continue to help us Apply these to our individual personal lives and also corporately to our local church. And we thank you. We love you. We give you the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 Zero 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 nine.